Welcome to episode 483 of the Cyber Law Podcast, where lawyers talking technology, security, privacy, and government, and we're about to express views not shared by our institutions, clients, family, friends, or pets. And it's going to be a big roundup. Uh, we've got uh, a whole bunch of people. Michael Nelson, he's going to go by Mike because there's a whole bunch of Michaels on this panel, a senior fellow at the Carnegie Endowments Technology and International Affairs Program. Jim Dempsey, who is a policy advisor at Stanford and a law lecturer at UC Berkeley. Michael Ellis, formerly of the House Intelligence Committee and the National Security Council, and now a visiting fellow at Heritage. Michael Weiner, a Steptoe partner who uh, comes on the show whenever we have antitrust problems that we can't figure out, which is pretty much all of them. And so he'll be talking Google, I hope. And I'm Stuart Baker, formerly with NSA and DHS. And the host and chief provocateur for the program, well, the um, a story we can't ignore is everything's back to normal at OpenAI, or at least the CEO is back and the board has been reformed. Jim, you know, this, this strikes me as... In some respects, it is kind of, well, okay, then nothing really has changed. But I think a lot of the thumb-sucking articles suggest that the changes were bigger than might seem when you just look at who's the CEO. Yeah, that's right, uh, Stuart, although I don't necessarily agree with some of the thumb-sucking analysis. As you said, the basic outline of the sort of whiplash uh, events are well-known to listeners of the podcast. On the Friday before Thanksgiving, the board of OpenAI, the developer of ChatGPT, announced that it had fired its CEO, Sam Altman. That was Friday before Thanksgiving. By Sunday, uh, Microsoft, which is a major funder to the tune of $13 billion, major funder of OpenAI, announced that it had hired Altman and Greg Brockman, former board chair and president of OpenAI. The next day, Monday before Thanksgiving, 700 employees of OpenAI, a company that only has about 750 plus employees, signed a letter saying they would all quit if Altman wasn't restored. And by Tuesday, Altman was rehired. The rebel board was ousted. Larry Summers and Brett Taylor, former co-CEO of uh, Salesforce, were brought onto the board, leaving everybody to ask what just happened. (laughs) And there are a variety of stories. The Washington Post, I think it was, had a pretty personality-driven story saying, well, (laughs) Sam Altman was fired from his last big job because he wasn't considered uh, trustworthy enough or it was felt he was too much out for himself as number one. Uh, The Wall Street Journal had an article tagging this to the effective altruism movement, which I think is a bit of a a red herring here. At some level, uh, everybody in Silicon Valley seems to be effective altruist and not even clear what that means anymore. I think what happened here was that Microsoft won, clearly Sam Altman won, and most importantly, I think the drive the development forward, all guns firing, all engines cranking 
push AI as far and as fast as it can go, that approach won. And the, call them doubters, call them worriers, call them whatever, uh, those worried about the impact of AI lost. Basically, there was an interesting story in uh, Reuters, which sort of fell apart by the week's end, saying that the firing was due to the fact that there had recently been a major breakthrough at OpenAI, taking AI to the next level, getting closer to general artificial intelligence that Altman had not been forthcoming with the board about that. There was a whistleblower letter apparently sent to the board by employees saying, we've made this very dangerous uh, breakthrough. By the way, the very dangerous breakthrough was uh, a system that could do math. Um, <laughs> I love this. I, you know, I have, I have said uh, on occasion that ChatGPT is superficially very plausible, makes a lot of errors, and can't do math. It's just like the people I went to law school with. Yeah, and, and you know, it, it has read, it, it predicts what is the next word in a sequence. So two plus two, it's read enough to know that two plus two equals four. But it's also, of course, read that two plus two doesn't always equal four. Right. And But now teaching it to do math or creating a, an AI that can actually on its own learn to do math means that you're getting closer to an AI that can actually reason that Which is plausible, right? It, no, it, 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 it makes some sense so that you, we would be a little worried about something that could do a lot of really advanced math because we wouldn't it wouldn't be as obvious when it was going off the rails. Well, and not to mention that it also gets you potentially closer. I don't know the, the actual science of it, but gets you closer to this concept of general AI, which is AI that is smarter uh, than humans and could you know lead you to the potentially, I guess, to the singularity. So why do you say this story? Well, because because later in the week, I, I read another story saying, well, the board actually never saw this whistleblower letter ah, okay, uh, and didn't actually know <laughs> about whether this breakthrough had occurred or, or not. But I do think that, you know, there has been this Question. I happen to be of the camp that OpenAI and Microsoft have acted irresponsibly. I think Microsoft pushed ChatGPT too far into its basic suite of products. I think people are taking on a lot of risk unknowingly as a result, risk of just flat out hallucination and error, but also cybersecurity risk, which I think AI models uh, pose. And so, and I saw Altman as the sort of part of the push forward, let's get it out there as quickly as, as we can. Camp, I think his ouster clearly came from those board members who were worried about too rapid, uncontrolled uh, advances in AI. And those, those board members worried about those rapid advances being not controlled. They clearly lost. Altman clearly won. Microsoft clearly won. And I think for now, the concerns in Silicon Valley that AI is moving too quickly or that we don't have a clear understanding of how, what implications it has, I think those voices have been muted and uh, pushed aside. 
Mike Nelson, you had something to say on this too? I definitely do. I want to thank Jim for doing a very nice job of providing the timeline very concisely. But I think this is an, a, a case study in how much confusion there is about AI and how in a vacuum people will speculate like crazy about what's really going on. At Carnegie, we have a number of people in our Carnegie California Center who are tied in very closely with the tech community. And they looked at some of these stories and thought, well, who said this? Particularly this story about the accelerationists against the decelerationists, that, that as some kind of theological debate driving all that. Now, a lot of people have been on different sides of the debate, so they want to join in. But I don't think that was what was driving this. It may have been the business strategy. And at the developer conference a few days before the ousting, um, Altman did propose some very aggressive new products and, and maybe the board felt they didn't know enough about it and hadn't really signed off. The indications I'm getting are that there were just lots of incidents over the last few months where Altman didn't quite tell the board what was going on. And that's usually what causes this kind of ouster. Well, there was at least one incident where he kind of dressed down one of the directors, Helen Toner, for a paper she'd written. And you don't usually dress down somebody who's on your board of directors. And so this this may simply, it may in part have been, she didn't think that she'd been treated with proper respect by him. If I had to speculate, I'd also point to a couple other things that he did in the months right before. Apparently, he was in discussions with the Chinese, with some very large investors in Saudi in, in, or in the Gulf states looking for another hundred billion dollar, a $10 billion check, at least. I mean, yep. This was, again, uh, you know, he wasn't, he hadn't gone very far, but it's the board didn't know all about that. They, they should have been very concerned. And then the other thing was he had an interesting comment he made, again, a couple months before when he was challenged at a conference and they said, so the questioner said, why, why should you six people be in charge of the future of humanity? And he started speculating about how they should reform the board. Yeah. And, and that's also a little dicey to do in a public situation. It was, it was novel. He was talking about how maybe we need some kind of crowdsourcing, you know, for the really big decisions. We'll have 100,000, a million people able to weigh in and we'll, we'll gauge the community to figure out what we want. Mike, Mike, would you though agree with my bottom line that the accelerationists won and the deaccelerationists lost? Yeah, I, I, I definitely agree that decelerationists aren't going to succeed as much. But I think the whole story led to a, just a flood of stories on how power is too concentrated. The American tech titans have all the control. I saw a bunch of stories coming out of Twitter and lots of tweets from the Europeans saying, well, this just proves why we've got to move extra fast on the AI Act. Ha. The funny part was they were saying, you know, we need to move fast on the AI Act, so we're going to consider it next month or the month after. I thought the story here was the private sector knows how to do AI governance a lot faster and a lot better than the European Union. So that's good. But I think the one thing that the, the people who are more concerned about where this could take us, people like you and a lot of other people who are much less informed about what the threats are, the good news is I do think there's going to be more pressure for transparency. And at Carnegie, we've got a number of people, including our president, 
Tino Cuellar, who's written about the need for more indications on you know what's really going on. It, it's it's not algorithmic transparency. It's not open source everything, but it is a sense that yeah, we we can't have a situation like we had with social media where companies were were researching all of the impacts of their technology, finding out some pretty scary things, particularly about teenage girls and Instagram and Facebook, and not sharing it anyway. So I, I think there will be even more uh, need for transparency, whether that translates into regulation, I don't think so. But I, I just think yes, there'll be a code of conduct that will be expected. On an earlier uh, episode, we talked about the uh, Biden administration's uh, massive executive order on artificial intelligence. And one of the features of that was in a way directly related to this, the requirement that companies disclose under pressure of the Defense Production Act, that companies disclose to the government their sort of breakthrough developments in so-called frontier models or foundational models that could have uh, significant negative consequences. And when I was talking about that, I was saying, well, what they're really looking for is what's going to happen next year in terms of what, what comes next. And at least the Reuters story <laughs> suggested that what, what, what I expected and others expected would happen next year has already happened. Um, yeah. And that there is uh, something going on, as we all know, is going to happen. Other things that go f- quite beyond large language models and their sort of stochastic uh, capability. Well, that's my biggest frustration with this whole debate about AI. It's, AI has been equated to ChatGPT. I mean, that's there's so much else going on that needs attention. And I think there have been a number of proposals designed to regulate ChatGPT that would be disastrous for the rest of the world, whether it's AI systems for controlling sewage treatment plants or military applications. There, there's just a I've been involved in tech policy for 35 years in Washington. I have never seen a technology and a debate more confused than one over AI. I mean, it's just astonishing how little information many of the commentators have. And on the other hand, there are tech champions out there. There are people who have the engineering knowledge and are actually trying to relate to the general public. And I, I, I try to follow them pretty closely, particularly the chief AI scientist at Meta, Jan Yakun. Yakun? Yeah. I mean, he's done a couple things just so well in the last week on Twitter, just a, a very concise thread on, okay, what's really going on here? And I'd urge people to read that. All right. Okay, so I want to come back to that and especially how the Europeans are doing on it. But first, I thought I'd I'd take our uniquely uh, or more or less uniquely American approach to regulating big tech, which is to sue everybody for antitrust everywhere. And Michael Weiner, the Google trial over search monopolization I guess it isn't quite over, but it looks like it's just about done. And I thought it might be a good time for you to tell us what's the theory as it has emerged and how do you think the case is going to come out? All right. So first, where we are, the trial started September 12th. It, the, the testimony wrapped up November 16th. Coming up next, post-trial briefing due February 9th. Responses March 22nd, and then closing arguments the first couple of days in May. The judge left the parties with, quote, I have no idea what I'm going to do. Both sides have been very effective, close quote. 
if Google is found to to have acted unlawfully, then the remedy issue won't start until the next phase of the trial, which will be sometime in the spring. So cutting through all the testimony, I kind of see there being two big issues. First one is, is market definition. And DOJ alleges that Google has a 90% share of general searches and 95% of general searches on mobile devices, to which Google says, no, we compete not only with Bing and DuckDuckGo, but with social media, with lots of other vertical search engines, with Amazon, TikTok, Expedia, TripAdvisor, Yelp, Apple, they're all competitors. To which DOJ says, no, those specialized vertical providers, they're different. On Amazon, you can only search for products. You can't search for services. You can't book travel on Google. You have to go to a specialized vertical site. To which Google says, well, no. Um, well, the DHS's search ads are, are just different from, from banner or display ads. And, and Google's response is, no, advertisers switch the type of ads they buy in order to get better results. So general search ads are competing with lots of other different types of advertising. And DOJ's response is, now, wait a minute, that, that's not right. Um, your, let's look at, at what you've done here, Google, your exclusive default search deals, the, 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 uh, the deals that, that give you the exclusive default position. They don't prevent anyone from pre-installing Amazon or TikTok or Facebook or anything else except for general search engines. So you know, cutting through it, even your own documents, Google, suggest that, that general search is different from, from vertical search and... That, that's sort of the debate on market definition. I got to say, I'm, you know, as a user, I'm moderately persuaded by the U.S. government's position on that. Those other engines are different. I, I agree. So then the second big issue, what's the competitive impact of Google's exclusive default position agreements? And DOJ says, yeah, it, it's clear they lock out the competition, to which Google responds, no, we competed for those slots. And we beat them in the marketplace. Uh, we competed for those, and, and those are ours. And, and besides, it's not the default position that uh, is exclusionary. We keep our high market share because we're better than the competition, and, and we can prove it. I mean, look at, at what happened with Mozilla. In 2014, Yahoo paid Mozilla $100 million more than, 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 uh, than we were willing to, to pay in order to get to the default position on Firefox. And fast forward a few years, Mozilla's customers hated it. Users... In, insisted that, that Google was better, and Mozilla changed back to, to, to Google. Google had an expert whose testimony was that only 2.9% of the quality gap between Google and Bing can be explained by the relative size of Google versus Bing. There are diminishing returns from size. DOJ says maybe they're diminishing, but they're not vanishing. Having the default position is very powerful. And they cite uh, an internal email from Google's chief economist, Hal Varian, early on that says that default position appears to overwhelm product quality and, and brand. Um, they have expert testimony about users' uh, strong bias for default, status quo bias is what the expert calls it. And uh, when Samsung changed its interface to make it easier for users to change the default from Google to something else, Google complained, made Samsung change it back. A DOJ points out that when the EU ordered Google in 2019 to implement the choice screen, Bing and Yahoo and DuckDuckGo all gained ground, to which Google says through their expert Kevin Murphy, yeah, even with the choice screen, less than 1% of U.S. consumers would switch away from Google. Competition, Google says, is still just a click away. Others can still compete for consumers. Even if you have the default position, you can still compete to get those consumers. 
because competition is still just a click away. DOJ has DuckDuckGo CEO uh, testifying. No, it, it's, it's actually about 13 clicks away on, on some devices, and, and you're looking at various devices, so it's a lot more complicated, and, and people don't switch. DOJ continues, uh, scale is important, size matters. Microsoft CEO testifies that, that scale creates a vicious cycle. The most frequently searched term on Bing is Google. Um, <laughs> yes, locks out the competition, DOJ says, and uh, gee, and this is coming down to it. If Google were to get 90% of search volume, no matter what, then why are they paying $26 billion a year in revenue share? They're paying Apple more than $17 billion a year. Why? To get them to stay out of search. Google is aware that, that Apple uh, had devised the, a web index themselves. So this is clearly exclusionary. Google's expert says, now the payments to Apple are not an attempt to maintain a monopoly. What they show is that Google really isn't a monopoly. Apple is, is a competitive threat. Um, so if, if Apple, little company like Apple is a competitive threat, then how can Google be a monopoly? So I mean, that, that's sort of the, 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 the quick and dirty version of uh, this major issue, which was the focus of the, uh, of the trial. Yeah, my humble opinion, I, I'm sort of struck by the stubborn fact uh, why do you pay $17 billion a year if, if you're so good that consumers are going to demand you anyway? That does seem exclusionary to me. Uh, you can't pay a potential competitor to stay out of the market. So, you know, I wasn't at trial. A lot of the trial wasn't open to the public. But uh, my fearless forecast is that this isn't going away. We're going to get uh, round two in the spring. Yeah. My particular personal take on this is Google was a lot better 10 years ago. And they're paying all that money now so that nobody can realize that Bing is actually not half bad. Well, they're not half bad. Uh, I think that, that, that there is still a quality difference. I don't think anybody argued that, that, uh, that, that the other general search providers are as good. The question is, why is, is, uh, is Google better? And uh, are they taking steps to, to exclude others from, from getting better? Okay. Now, drum roll. Uh, Michael Wiener's prediction about the future. What's going to happen on the question of whether there was a violation? My, my, my fearless prediction is I think they're going to find a violation. And then the really interesting question becomes, what's the remedy? And uh, that's going to be wide open. I didn't want to want to think about what it could be. Although if the theory is that scale is important, whatever remedy is there's going to be is going to have to be robust. And we'll see what happens. That really I need to wait two years and let Microsoft incorporate open AI technology in, in a more effective way and beat them in the marketplace. Or wait for a, an election and, and see what happens when we have a new administration who's, who's <laughs> in charge of the kit. Okay. All right. Okay. So let's go back just briefly to AI regulation. Jim, I was really struck by the German-French-Italian agreement uh, you know, I'm usually pretty cynical about the, the motivations behind European tech policy. And this just leaves me feeling you can't be too cynical. <laughs> they ended up saying things that are completely different from where the AI Act has been going and basically saying, we think there ought to be nothing but self-regulation for foundation models, which is the the big stuff. And that the only things that need to be regulated are applications of those foundation models. Yeah, exactly, Stuart. And 
Just background, of course, uh, the European Union has been trying now for quite a few years to draft and agree upon a AI act. They've actually dragged their feet so much that in some ways they've been uh, surpassed by uh, events, uh, certainly. Yes. I don't think their draft fully accounted for, even accounted for at all, uh, LLMs and, and, and sort of burst of uh, activity around. Can we call it the OBE Act? Well, you know, so now, so they then they came up with, you know, um, amendments or revisions intended to address yeah. the, the ongoing developments um, that further gridlocked things or appeared to. Now come forth uh, three of the biggies, Germany, France, and Italy, with this uh, supposed agreement, which Reuters, uh, I think, broke the story on, where the three governments supported mandatory self-regulation through codes of conduct, which seems to be a little bit of an, of an oxymoron. But you're right, Stuart, in zeroing in on the sentence in this joint paper, that they support the regulation of the application of AI and not the technology as such. There's some transparency requirements in that developers of foundation models would have to uh, define model cards, which are intended to provide information about a machine learning model. I'll note that OpenAI on the recent versions of ChatGPT actually decided to cut back on the amount of information in the model cards. Um, the whole name, OpenAI, suggested they were founded on the principle of some radical form of transparency. They've cut back on that, uh, OpenAI has. But I happen to think that uh, Europe is wrong here. Um, Mike Nelson is probably going to disagree with me, but I think we do need to worry about the technology itself. And we do need to worry about these foundation models and where they're going. And the whole point of the concern is, if you focus only on uses, the bad you're going to be surprised. You're, you're exactly. Gonna... <laughs> the, whole, the whole point of this is, is that people are developing ways to use this that the developers did not intend it. And to go beyond the, I mean, it's the overhang problem. The technology can do more than even the developers of the technology planned it to be able to do. So and this is where I do think the U.S. in its sort of tentative way in that executive order was right in saying we need to know more about the underlying technology. Yes, we can maybe regulate the applications, um, anti-discrimination or whatever. But I was very surprised with these three companies saying, oh, it's not the technology. It's only the applications. So, Michael, do, do you want to Mike Nelson, do you want to uh, defend what uh, these three countries have done? I was absolutely astonished that they would come in at the last minute with a totally better approach. They had to try to deal with policies that were colliding, right? They right. have so many things they're trying to do in this bill. But in the end, I think they actually listened to the CEO and co-founder of, of Mistral. If you haven't read the, the statements from Cedric O. Oh, and from uh, Arthur Minch, who is the current CEO, they lay it out and they say, wait a minute, you know, we, we think a far better approach is to regulate the uses and 
we have 90% of the law we need to do that. As Jim mentioned, if there's discrimination, we have anti-discrimination law. If we have fraud, we have anti-fraud law. If we have other types of abuse, we can probably find a law to go after those people. And that will provide a huge market push for the developers of the models to provide the features that responsible companies will want to use to make sure that people are not able to abuse them so easily. So that, that I think, is, is what's missing in a lot of this debate. It, it's always been better to provide an environment where people do the right thing than to tell people exactly what they need to do. Well, this is this is also a plea for industry self-regulation from, huh, what do you know, a French industry participant. Uh, it, it is not a surprise that a French company might think they'd have a better line on complying with European uh, regulation than others. So they're happy to have some advantages here, but they don't want to be facing a heavy regulatory burden on their fundamental work if other people are developing fundamental work outside of Europe and choosing not to sell it to Europe. I think what also happened, though, is that you suddenly saw, as they were getting to the final weeks, perhaps, different departments within these governments woke up and said, Oh, well, wait, wait a minute. Wait yeah. a minute. There might be some other pieces to this puzzle. There might be some other policies that should be considered, like what is the impact on innovative French companies and German companies? And I, and I also think there was a sense that the bill was so poorly drafted and so vague. And so kludged, kludged together after that in order to say, no, this, is, this bill is the same bill more or less as we had last time. Yeah. Well, my favorite hashtag is when policies collide. I I use it all the time on Twitter. And they clearly have that going on where, okay, we want real transparency in how the data is being collected and used to train these models. Oh, but make sure that nobody knows anything about the personal information that's being used to train these models. (laughs) And and you just walk through the language and you see this section in conflict with that section. And you don't see a good definition of AI in the whole bill. Uh, and that's the most striking thing is you you usually uh, I'm a technologist, not a lawyer. I write lab reports, not legal definitions. But I know that a definition should be somewhere in the law to explain what it is you're regulating and what it is you are not regulating. When I worked for Cloudflare, we never used the word artificial intelligence. I mean, we did advanced analytics. Yeah. And we did it really well. But I see this problem not just in Brussels, so this is not uh, Mike Nelson bashing Europe. I also would note that the dictionaries around the world are announcing their word of the year. And the Collins Dictionary, as you expect, named AI. Right. Uh, Oxford is final in their final stage. They don't do what Collins does. Collins looks at what, what word are people searching for. Oxford actually puts it to a vote. And they just put out their eight words. And you can decide whether the word of the year will be prompt or swifty or parasocial, whatever that is. But it's, it's going to be fun to see if uh, prompt becomes the word of the year from Oxford. Do yeah. the AI bots get to vote? <laughs> Probably once at a time, one at a time, because they, they do have some security to al- not allow uh, open access to the system. One other thing I thought was very good about this new discussion is we are having more discussion about open source AI. I mean, for a while there, people were acting as if open source AI was plutonium and that, oh my God, this these models are just going to be unleashed on the world. 
I think some of the Europeans who have been big advocates of open source in the past may understand that another problem with the AI Act is that it assumes there's a company that you can sue if the foundation model isn't designed the way they want it. Well, how do you sue the open source community? You can certainly sue the people who would abuse an open source model. But if there's a true open source project, there's no real way to get at the kind of compliance requirements that that, uh, Brussels seems to assume are so easy to impose. Yeah, so I, I guess that means that you end up suing the people who write the app that's built on the open source, which means that from the point of view of the European Union, it seems to me that if they are saying we're heavily regulating the apps and the US and the EU and, and the UK say we're not going to go that hard and that far, people start developing products and not selling them in Europe because they're not sure about what their legal status would be. And so there's a kind of Euro passing, uh, which I guess we could call that the Brussels defect. <laughs> but yeah, it does seem to me that they are really caught now uh, after having assumed they, they could just sort of GDPR the world with a, the AI Act. It's turning out not to work out for them. Yes, yeah, Stuart, I wanted to thank you for being part of a very interesting discussion on, among other things, the Brussels effect and the Brussels defect. Yeah, that was fun. That was that was at Carnegie and it was a great bunch of people brought together. Right? Okay, so let's turn to one of the less appetizing aspects of the cyber world we're in, which is that you could be in a plane flying over Europe or Asia, relying on your GPS to help you find the airport you're going to and then land and discover that not only has your GPS been getting the wrong signal, it has incorporated the wrong signal deep into its internal uh, navigation system so that All you can do if you want to know where you are is phone the airport and say, where am I? (laughs) So, Michael Ellis, uh, this looks to me as though it's the outcome of all of the defenses that people are trying to develop against drones and missile attacks. Uh, And it suggests that maybe having two or three big missile wars going on in your neighborhood might be bad for civilian aviation. Yeah. Who would have thought that that might uh, be a place you wouldn't want to fly an airplane around? But uh, no, that's that's absolutely right, Stuart. The reporting is about what's called spoofing uh, of GPS uh, signals, which is, as, as you noted, when you know some nefarious actor puts out a fake GPS signal, sends it to your GPS transponder to cause, in this case, commercial airliners to think they are in a different location than they actually are. And the sort of surprising thing about this is that it apparently affects the various backup systems that commercial airliners have. You know, that it's not really supposed to affect those backup systems. They are supposed to be determining the aircraft's location in an independent fashion, uh, you know, via dead reckoning. Yeah. Dead reckoning, where, where you, you just yeah. say, I've been going in this direction for an hour, and now I'm turning in this other direction, and I'm going to go in this direction, and I know what the wind is, so I should know yeah. where I am. And for some reason, they don't. Probably, Apparently, apparently those are still incorporating GPS in some yeah. step along the way, causing the spoofing to uh, to have an, an effect. And yeah, as you noted, the only, the only way for the airliner to figure out where it is is to call air traffic control and ask them, where do you see me on the radar screen? This is obviously not, not a great situation. The recent incidents have all been happening in the Middle East. 
And some open source researchers have found that the signals appear to be coming from somewhere near Tehran. Surprise, surprise. Yeah. Um, and in fact, caused one commercial airliner to inadvertently stray into Iranian airspace recently. So, uh, I mean, there's, there's a great uh, possibility of a, a significant incident happening here, you know, reminiscent of the Korea airliner shoot down, you know, yeah. in, the, in the 1980s. And, uh, you know, a real, a real tragedy could occur here. The, you know, this looks to be another instance of gray zone warfare by the Iranians, you know, taking steps that are, are short of armed conflict, but are consistently causing havoc, whether it's cyber attacks, whether it's shelling and, and rocketing uh, U.S. bases in the Middle East uh, through proxy groups or having their proxies in Yemen, the Houthis send missiles at Israel or try to hijack tankers, right? All things that are calculated to stay below our response threshold yet achieve their goals. And, you know, I think as, as, as long as actors keep doing it and keep getting away with it, right, as long as no one is holding them accountable, then this behavior will continue. Yeah, I, and I, I think I saw some indications that this is the Israelis may also be doing this, uh, that some of the spoofing came out of Israel, which wouldn't be a surprise given how many rockets have been uh, launched at them. I'm not usually eager to be fair to uh, Tehran, but on, in this case, I think we, we ought to acknowledge that there, there may be some ambiguity about who's responsible for all of it. Yeah, well, and and this I think ties to our our second electronic warfare uh, story today, which is that you know this this kind of GPS spoofing is a a form of electronic attack that we're also seeing in Russia and Ukraine, right? That um, there is a constant cat and mouse game going on between the Russians and the Ukrainians in the electromagnetic spectrum to try to jam each other's signals and spoof each other's signals to try to cause their you know, aircraft or autonomous systems to fail and. You know, the, the, the upshot of this recent reporting is that the NATO and U.S. made equipment is not as good at countering this kind of electronic warfare as everyone thought it would be or thought it should be. And I think is a sign that the last 20 years of the war on terror have left the U.S. military extremely well prepared to take on low tech adversaries like Al Qaeda and ISIS, but quite unprepared for conflict with modern militaries. And the Russians, for instance, are very good at this, right? It's yeah. a, while their their Soviet heritage has left them stuck to outdated ground tactics and, you know, infantry wave assaults, the Soviets were always very, very skilled in this area. And the Russians have inherited that that heritage and uh, have, have a lot of capabilities in this realm that we just aren't prepared to deal with. It, it's actually reminiscent, I think, of the effect that the Spanish Civil War had on military aviation, right? Of yeah. each side testing out their technology and finding out what's working and what's not working, um, and a real, a real accelerant to the, the military value of that technology. Here you're seeing it for, for electronic warfare, and it's not a great harbinger for the U.S. in any future conflict with China, who is similarly skilled in electronic warfare. Well, the analogy is that um, Russia is Spain, as uh, Franco Spain, and China is Nazi Germany. Uh, so it, it may be a, a tough comparison for the Russians to live with, but I agree with you. They, the Chinese are clearly over there to learn lessons, and at least according to what they're saying publicly, they think the lesson is that the, the Russians are better at this than we are. Yeah, right. The U.S. systems are not um, as well prepared for this as everyone thought they were. All right. 
Jim, let's talk real cybersecurity law. And I, I got a, a request from a listener who said, have you covered the uh, New York Financial Services cybersecurity regs? And they were already out and we hadn't. So this is a chance to talk about them. They, they look like a very detailed and comprehensive set of things that you ought to do. I didn't th- see a lot to say, oh, that, that's unnecessary, did you? No. First of all, of course, what was issued on November 1 in New York was an amendment to a 2017 regulation. So it was in 2017 that New York State took the really big step in issuing a set of comprehensive cybersecurity regulations for uh, financial services, which in New York also includes insurance companies. And the regs have already been enforced, have been enforcement actions against a wide variety of companies, including, for example, Carnival uh, Cruise Line, which uh, actually had a function that brought it under the regulation uh, of the New York State Department of Financial Services. And the November 1 amendments are, I think, incremental. They ratchet up some of the requirements. They create a set of companies called Class A companies, which are bigger companies which are now going to be required to undergo an independent audit, although the way independent is defined, it could be someone in-house, so long as that person has uh, independence. And otherwise, it, it, it sort of takes a variety of issues, tightens or expands requirements, expanded requirements on access, uh, management, uh, privileges, uh-huh. expanded requirements on asset inventory and uh, management, a new section, in fact, on vulnerability management, now called out as a separate requirement, somewhat more explicit requirement that the board shall exercise oversight of cyber risk management, which I think is already pretty much a requirement on boards, at least to publicly traded companies. Somewhat more detail in terms of the responsibility of the chief information security officer. We've talked uh, several times on this podcast about the sort of ratcheting up of expectations on CISOs, including in this case an explicit requirement that they report in a timely manner to the board on significant cybersecurity events. I think already that should have gone without saying. So, Again, nothing to my mind that is groundbreaking, nothing in my mind that is radical, but certainly a statement by the state of New York that it is uh, continuing to put a priority on cybersecurity of companies doing business in New York, starting with the financial services industry. And just one more point, Stuart, this was coupled with an announcement by the state, or at least uh, the Wall Street Journal, obtained a a draft of cybersecurity regulations for hospitals. So basically taking this model of state-level cybersecurity regulation, extending it to hospitals, initial plan would be to publish the draft rules on December 6, 60-day comment period, et cetera. We'll see if they stick with that. But the governor and um, other senior officials in New York State clearly looking for 
other sectors to which they can extend their financial services model. All right. Thank you. It's a time of, um, in, in some circles, of uh, profound nostalgia for the Obama administration. And uh, Senator Wyden clearly is suffering from that because he has revived in his recent letter a criticism of a federal program that was first disclosed in the New York Times to uh, you know widespread yawns in 2013. And the, the Obama administration sort of stopped, kind of stopped funding it, at least out of the White House for a while. And then the Trump administration brought it back and the Biden administration has gone in both directions on it. But I, I, I guess, uh, Michael Ellis, why should we care now about something that we've known about since 2013? Well, I'm not sure we should. Um, <laughs> it's the quick answer. So this is a, you know, another instance, I think, of, you know, Senator Wyden, uh, behind every corner is another shadow of a warrantless surveillance program to him. And, yeah. um, uh, and this is another instance of that. And, and he uses the same language. He's been saying if the American people understood this, they would be outraged about every single program <laughs> that he has complained about in the last 10 years. <laughs> Everything he learns about. Uh, exactly. Exactly. And, and to your point, uh, Stuart, this was disclosed by The New York Times in 2013. So what, what are we talking about? This is a, a program called Hemisphere wherein AT&T keeps call detail records. So that's the to from information on phone calls and keeps those records. And when law enforcement has a request, they go and get an administrative subpoena. They send the subpoena to AT&T and AT&T provides the records in response to the subpoena. I gather, you know, reading between the, in, in the lines of the story that AT&T is probably keeping the records longer than it otherwise would at the behest of the government. And therefore, the government is compensating AT&T for its trouble. Although it doesn't appear to be big money for, for AT&T, it describes it as $6 million in funding, um, unclear over, over what time period. But you know, this, this really isn't that different than you know, the government sending administrative subpoenas to tech companies, which it does on a routine basis for information about their users. You know, Google keeps vast repositories of its users' emails and other communications and has those available to respond when, when law enforcement asks, supported by legal process. And this is, this is AT&T doing the same thing. There's you know, a lot of smoke that Wyden uh, casts around the fact that it's being run out of the White House. By out of the White House, he means out of the Office of National Drug Control Policy, which, yes, technically is a component of the executive office of the president, but, you know, is hardly close to the beating heart of the Oval Office um, right. and is you know not usually thought of as an intelligence collection agency. Rather, they're, in this case, handing out the grant money, as they do to many other drug prevention programs, to enable law enforcement access here. I, I haven't seen a lot of media interest in this story, so I, I suspect this this will get more yawns. Okay, I, I agree. It, it's just a reminder that Senator Wyden does set his hair on fire with regularity about things that actually most that people don't care very much about. All right, uh, then let's ask Mike Nelson to take us out with two or three things. Mike, I know you're about to go to India, and so I'm going to ask you to tell us what you think are going to be the hot cyber law issues in India, and then come back and Talk to talk about a couple of UK legislative developments. There's actually a lot of parallels in both countries. There's a real push to get a bunch of 
irresolvable problems solved in the next few months. In India, there's been a lot of discussion about online privacy. Uh, they've been working on this for six or seven years, really hard. At one point about a year ago, uh, just before I was last in India, last December, they threw out the entire effort. They had built this bill and been piling on more and more requirements, many of them contradictory. And finally, the minister looked at it and said, this is no good, let's start over, Let's limit the number of words. And they actually made some progress in getting a clean bill. They haven't gotten it through Parliament yet. A lot of debates. And again, the collision between law enforcement on one side, privacy advocates, industry on the other. They're also working on data localization. And here it's really interesting because they want the rest of the world to have no control on data that flows to India. But they're finding more and more reasons to restrict data from India to other countries. Well, that's the American then, position too. <laughs> so there are parallels. But my my reason for watching India so carefully and for going there three times in just over a year is because they are a test bed and they have more than a billion people. Yeah. They're in a lot of the same conflicts that we are with China, with they're, they're certainly working against us in some ways to take technology to developing countries. They think they have an advantage in developing appropriate technology for Africa and elsewhere, and, and uh, particularly in Southeast Asia. So there's a lot of, of interesting dynamics. But the most interesting thing for me is the Indians talk over and over again about a techno-legal approach to these issues. They don't have as many lawyers we, as we have. They have a lot more engineers than lawyers. And so what they tend to do is what we did in the Clinton administration. You go and build something, you see how it works, and then you see if there's some need for some legal constraints. So they, they have their authentication system called Aadhaar that's been a phenomenal success in getting digital identity to more than 300 million people. They now have a digital payment system. They're trying to sort that out, and they're building something that they call the uh, DEPA, Digital Data Empowerment and Protection Infrastructure. And they focus on both of those pieces. How do we protect the data, but how do we make it more useful for the citizens who are providing it? So that's a, a, a different approach that I think we could learn from. It is uh -huh. a little bit like we did in the Clinton administration. We built the whitehouse.gov website, and then we found out the problems with having government websites. Right. Rather than having a five-year plan and, and waiting an extra year. The other thing I would point to, though, is what's going on in the U.K., and there's even more momentum behind their efforts. And much of it is in a direction that I'm pretty appalled at. They're moving so quickly that nobody's noticing all the rights that are being given away. This is partly because they're out of the EU. And now, after all these years, they're finally figuring out what, what parts of the GDPR they like and don't like. They're changing their surveillance regulations. Um, it's not just the... Investigatory Powers Act amendments, which are getting a lot of attention because they're they're adding things like a provision that says, oh, oh, you don't need a warrant if you want to go into somebody's house and arrest the person for stealing an iPad or a cell phone if the device has notified the user through GPS that it's in the house. Ah. Well, that sounds so logical. You know, why do you need a warrant? You know, the phone's there. Well, 
this is a new, great new way to dock somebody. You steal a cell phone and you put it in his house. <laughs> and now police show up without a warrant. Um, but it's also, I think, precedent breaking to say, oh, you don't need a warrant under this rather common situation. Another problem is that... Although what would the warrant application read like? We just got a signal that says that I'm his phone and I'm in this other person's house. We want to go in. That That is probable cause to believe the phone's in the house. We're going to go in. Well, but it might also say, oh, this is in a nunnery run by Episcopalians. Well, maybe, although that's not, that uh, most uh, applications for probable cause probably don't have every conceivable adverse fact to the applicant. Again, I mean, it's just, it's, it's a precedent that could lead to the fact that, it oh, could. we have a tracer, that we have some other, you know, uh, we have a, a fitness app. Yeah. Okay. I take your point. You do want to be cautious about it. The other thing, though, is this other provision, this other law being debated is the Data Protection and Digital Information Act. And it's being pushed through not by the Information Commissioner's Office, who's been almost silent and hasn't really talked about the privacy implications of this bill. It's being pushed by the Department of Science, Innovation and Technology. And that group has just dumped 150 pages which will be discussed in two days. It has all these nice exemptions for research on machine learning. Who knows what kind of research, but all these provisions that normally would kick in on privacy are kind of minimized if you're doing research. Right. And no indication that university research that becomes a commercial product um, would now be covered if it's a commercial product, I, I don't know. It's again, there's all these unanswered questions because nobody's really debating it. They're pushing it through in a few days. Well, don't, don't you think the conservatives want to show that there actually is a dividend from Brexit? And this is where exactly. you can show there's a dividend from Brexit by saying our rules on data protection are going to be common sense, but not as crazy as GDPR. And so, yeah, they they said instead of adequacy for exporting data, the legal regime has to be not materially lower than the UK standard, which is, you know, what it should have been in in the EU as well. Uh, So I thought, you know, in principle, what they're doing is a good idea. I'm guessing that it won't matter that much because most people will have to comply with GDPR as well and won't bother to uh, to take advantage of you know, the slight differences that the UK law introduces. Well, they're not slight differences. (laughs) Okay. Biggest controversy among the technical community where I spend a lot of my time. And I also follow what groups like the Open Rights Group and Privacy International are saying. As they're reading it, some of these provisions could require companies not to fix bugs. Or if they were going to fix bugs, they have to tell the British government, oh, we're fixing this bug which may have been used to hack into systems Hmm. or the worst possible outcome for most of us would be the end to end to end encryption. And Meredith Whitaker, the CEO of signal has been incredibly outspoken and has said, look, if, if the European union or the UK are going to force us to reduce our use of end to end encryption, then we're going to have to stop providing these services. I thought she'd already, I I thought they'd basically, satisfied her i think no, she, i think no, she, I, no. well she she, I, she stopped threatening to leave she said we we're going to call it a victory well we're going to call the 
temporary victory because the law now says you must do what's technologically feasible. Right. And and the UK government has said, oh, we don't think this is feasible now. Right. But some of these new provisions are perhaps affecting what technologically feasible means. Okay. So uh, the, the UK is at one end of the spectrum in Europe. You know, the, the Germans are at the other end of the spectrum. But the, because of the IRA bombings 30 years ago and the number of uh, closed circuit TVs in, in the UK, there is a, a, a different sensitivities. But I, I do worry about where they're going and particularly since they're going so fast, there could be a lot of unintended consequences. And a lot of other countries might look to the, to the UK, particularly other Commonwealth countries, and say, well, if it's good enough for the Brits, a democratic country, uh, we'll adopt it too. Well, if you're Rishi Sunak and you're down 20 points in the polls and you can see an election coming, you kind of have to get a whole bunch of stuff done and hope that you can change the dynamic. I think that's probably what he's doing here. Yeah, certainly doing that with AI and the AI safety yep. summit. But uh, he got the king to include three or four sentences on these issues in the king's speech. Well, I'm sure the king <laughs> choked on them too, <laughs> no, knowing his views. But okay, Mike Nelson, thank you so much. Michael Ellis, Jim Dempsey, Michael Wiener, thanks for joining us. For our listeners, if you've got questions or comments, or if you want to tell me how we ought to run the podcast after we hit episode 500 send those comments to cyberlawpodcast at gmail.com i'm really enjoying i i have been saying god i really want to do something different after 500 and i'd like your thoughts and i'm getting some very thoughtful comments and so i really enjoy it so please do keep sending those they will have an impact on what we do i'm, I'm increasingly of the view we need to change something and i just need to figure out what we're going to change so send those comments in and otherwise, if you just like the show, leave us a review on Spotify or iTunes, and we'll read it on the air if it's entertaining. This has been episode 483 of the Cyber Law Podcast. And so there's a kind of Euro passing. We could call that the Brussels defect. <laughs>